Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Episode 23. Woo! 23. Uh, there's nothing special about the number 23. <laughs> I was like, 23 and we? <laughs> <laughs> 23 is just, no, just a number. Is it prime? <laughs> I think it's prime. <laughs> hmm. I'll just like cut in a weird edit of me like, yes, it is. Or no, it isn't. <laughs> because your boy eliminated that from his brain when he left uh, being an engineering major. You were an engineering major? <laughs> Calculus one through four and differential equations in college. Did not know that. Interesting. And I made A's in them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh-oh, I do not know how to do any of this anymore. <laughs> and I changed. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is we always joke about how we're the same person. My backup choice for major in college was math. Ooh, so that was, I went with math because... I didn't know what I was doing and my friends were doing engineering and I was like, okay, that's what I do too. <laughs> I don't believe that everything happens for a reason, but I do think that the path I've taken has been a successful one, even with that detour. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm thinking like, does nothing happen for a reason? <laughs> Is that your feeling or no, you didn't say that, but... It's a struggle. I mean, it, everything happens for a reason implies some level of higher consciousness, which I'm not a hard no on, but I'm also not a hard yes on. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at all of these crimes, it's like, yeah, so every bad, every horrific thing was for a reason is like pretty mean. Yeah, agreed. No, I think shit's totally random. But I do think that humans are really good at applying meaning to things. And and the people who are able to find meaning in even the bad things are people who end up kind of like doing well in life because that's how you get through them. So if that's Jesus or, you know, whatever, it, for me, it's not. It's But I can still find meaning, like you said. You know, it brought me to this path and I'm happy where I am now. So that's... That's the meaning. Maybe everything happens for a reason is like, and that reason is because humans have free will. Not like that there is a good guiding hand that is making <laughs> things happen, but everything happens because everything in our perception of a forward momentum of time is a domino. Yeah. Yes. Because something caused it to happen. <laughs> that is literally true. Yeah. And I promise I am not high at 11.07 a.m. <laughs> As I was thinking through that, I was like, whoa, I'm getting crazier and crazier. <laughs> I like it, though. I think we could divide this up into like 10 lessons and then paywall it. And we could, yeah, make some infomercials or something. I'm ready. We just got to watch Succession and the Righteous Gemstones to learn how to be uh, cutthroat business people. We're going to need COVID to end, though, before we can take on a third job. True. Unless it pays right away. 
Yeah. Even then, I can barely do this second job that we have now. So we could talk a little behind the scenes. Like we're just, we're barely like getting this done at this point. So listener, if you're listening, thank you so much. And we are trying our damnedest to pull this together for you and stay on our weekly schedule, which means so much to us because we actually enjoy doing this, but we're just like, we're tired. Yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> well, we would because we do it and everything <laughs> happens for a reason. <laughs> But yeah, being a communicator at public institutions during a pandemic is real damn hard. It's so hard. We just had like an hour long vent session before we started our record to get it all out before we before we started putting <laughs> this down. On... And listener, we did that for you because yes. you did not want to hear that. <laughs> no. Nope. <laughs> So, yeah, that's where we're at. What do you have for banter? Because I literally have nothing. Yesterday was my first day off in 23 days. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Uh, And banter, I really do, I kind of feel like I'm in the phase of the thing that's getting me through is movies and TV. Mm -hmm. This is about to be just unbelievable, but like... It's not food anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, did you have that too, where like the beginning of the pandemic in, in through the first year, like food was such a treat and like such a probably unhealthy coping mechanism, like the serotonin boost from like picking up food. Like, I don't have that anymore. <laughs> so I have not stopped that. <laughs> and I'm still eating. I'm still eating it. But like the joy like actually finding joy Mm. in the good tasting meal is gone (laughs) oh see i never had the joy i just had like the blind numbing (laughs) appeal of whatever it was like at the beginning of the pandemic it was organic cereal bars these like (laughs) whole 365 whatever like i mean they're basically giant fig newtons but like I just ate them all the time. Like we couldn't even keep them in the house because I would just eat them, eat them, eat them. And then I dropped them and and then, you know, move on. So I've had like five different th- and then it was like popcorn and then I'm on to new things now. I don't know what my current thing is, but there, it was so never I, joyful. It was always like to numb the pain. <laughs> I do have a current thing, but to tell you about it is really exposing come on you can do it so i went to the store and i found a bag of lace potato chips uh-huh. that is flaming hot dill pickle flavor oh we talked about i don't know if we it made it into a pod but we talked about this not too long ago <laughs> there's an update mm-hmm. so it's so good it's my favorite chip there's ever been mm-hmm. and i was like well this is for sure a limited release and it's going to go away and i've only found it at walmart mm-hmm. so i went to walmart is that the shameful part <laughs> no <laughs> i bought four party-sized bags of them yeah <laughs> I, I mean like, that's I what know you they're do. gonna go away <laughs> yeah you have to so i went to walmart i 
picked up toilet paper because I was like, well, if I'm here, like, because yeah. I, I don't really grocery shop at Walmart. Walmart's kind of only for household products. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, well, while I'm here, so like I have a cart, I have a giant thing of toilet paper. I was like, well, <laughs> let me get some ice cream. I have ice cream. I have four bags of party size flaming hot dill pickle chips and that's it that's my whole cart did you go through the self-checkout or did you present yourself to someone for judgment very luckily the self-checkout but walmart has the self-checkout where it has a camera on you so you watch yourself check out oh my god you've literally made me cry I told you it was shameful. <laughs> Not shameful, just like endearing in in a humorous way. <laughs> so yeah, um, and then I was like, in my head, I was like, okay, well, when I finish two of these bags, I'll keep two in reserve and go get more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's pandemic thinking. It's what is happening to us. We're changing, like our brains are changing, and yeah. Oh my gosh, you just flashed a trigger memory because we discussed it earlier in our event sesh, but it just reminded me of, yeah, that episode kind of in the very beginning where we were like, yeah, oh, the pandemic, I wonder if it's going to be like the thing that generations look back at our weird behavior. Yeah. I mean, I may or may not have like four gross grosses, the plural of gross of toilet paper in the basement yeah, and not like paper. all at the beginning but just like i what at, even after that first wave of like oh shit everybody's getting toilet paper like i never stopped i just kept so for two years i've been my basement is full no i'm not telling anyone ever where i live because if there is an apocalypse <laughs> don't come to my house <laughs> i was really trapped in the no toilet paper i got Ugh. down to like a roll before a coworker bought bought me some and I've been sort of the same not like a massive supply but it's like two big packs and when one is gone I immediately get another so that there's always a full big pack yeah yeah not doing that again (laughs) (laughs) I mean we laugh about it but it really it is trauma like our brains are changing in response to this global trauma that we've been going through And I mean, you know, as we said earlier, too, we have it pretty good, like all things considered. And Mm -hmm. we know that. And it's fucking hard. Well, and I jumped on the latest pandemic trend of Wordle. Mm. I've been playing that every day. So maybe I should jump over because I do Wordscapes. So Wordle is very fun and it's one a day. Oh. It's not an app. It's a website, one puzzle a day. No ads, no email addresses. You just do it and it's done. I don't know if that's enough for me, but I could give it a try. I do wish that there were more than one Wordle per day. We'll do Wordscapes and I can put you on my team. My team is the best. I'm currently in a tournament. I'm number one in my (laughs) individual tournament and in my team tournament. No bragging, but we're pretty awesome. I've never even heard of Wordscapes. Yeah, it's an app and... You know, it's it's great. It helps numb the pain in addition what is, to giant fig newtons and popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> what is the gameplay? Is it it's just 
Scrabble words? No, um, it's like, um, so it's kind of like a crossword, but there are no hints. You just like, and then the letters are in a circle and you just. Oh, I have seen like ads for that as I'm like playing my Sudoku app or something. (laughs) We're such dorks. But yeah, so it's the ads that are like, you know, well, you probably get different ones because you're younger, but it's like, don't get Alzheimer's when you turn 50, play this game. Uh, I do get those too. (laughs) I, I personally get a little bit of joy when the ads are wrong. Yeah, same. And every time twitter asks me like do you want more personalized ads they're so good i'm like no nope no marketing is weird and i mean for the record i don't neither one of us really considers ourselves marketers with a capital m we're communications people who happen to be able to do marketing for causes we believe in yeah i think that's why we both work in the public sector and not the private sector yeah well technically i'm private now but yes for the benefit of humanity yeah like a social good yeah (laughs) yes and it gives us a gift for gab but if the private sector wants to give me two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to do something i'm open really yeah I, I could know. lie. <laughs> I could lie and say no. $250,000 a year? Mm-hmm. Have you ever worked at a big corporate entity? Not a big one. I've worked small, private, which does suck, but I was also not being paid well. <laughs> Just gross, though. I mean, I've tried, believe me, but mm, the culture is so weird. Well, yeah, and if you were all that rich then maybe your husband might try to murder you and yeah you would never know if he loved you for you or for all your bags of money and then there'd be podcasts about you (laughs) like today for example (laughs) yes episode 23 look at that you batted it up and i spiked it down or whatever (laughs) volleyball reference like did the sports Yes, episode 23, we're going to talk about love and money and intrigue and sadly death. Yeah, I do think that's kind of a prerequisite of the show. (laughs) Yeah, someone usually dies. (sighs) But this one today is really interesting. And can I just go in now? Are we there? Yeah. I'm looking for permission. Um. This one actually is really hits home for me because it takes place in my ancestral home of Rhode Island. So today, like I sometimes do, I'm going to start by setting the scene of our maybe possible crime, maybe not a crime, maybe an accident. Um, and like I said, it, it sees us in a place I love and I have loved since I was a little kid. Newport, Rhode Island. So Newport, if you don't know, is just the jewel of the crown of New England, I think, in my opinion. It is the Hamptons before there were the Hamptons. And so because this one's really personal for me, I'm going to go a little bit crazy with setting the scene. So if you're not interested in this truly beautiful and fascinating place, I am 
totally low-key judging you, but go ahead and just skip ahead because I'm going to really dig in here. Okay. You ready, Andrew? <laughs> yeah. I was like trying to figure out what, if anything, I know about Newport before you went. I know the Newport Folk Festival mm-hmm. is one of the biggest. It's like highly influential in music. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel as though there's maybe something to do with clams. <laughs> <laughs> and I also think of the cigarette brand. Mm. So I actually don't know if those come from here. I mean, makes sense that they might, but that's an area for future research. I know Rhode <laughs> Island's the biggest state. <laughs> uh, no, that's uh, that's it. That's that's where my knowledge stops. Good. So I do need to like break it down then and give us some real deep, deep information. Okay. So for those of you not from or familiar with New England slash Rhode Island slash Newport, I'm going to I'm going to break it down. First, New England. What is it? Where is it? Is it even in the United States? So I think I use this term a lot when I talk about things that happened around here. Um, But I know from growing up in the Midwest that a lot of folks don't know what New England is. My mom's whole side of the family is from here. So when I was a kid and I would tell people that I was going to New England for the summer, people often thought I was going to Europe. Not even kidding. Anyway, New England is a region of the United States in the larger, more well-known region of the Northeast. It's made up of six states in no particular order, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, Connecticut, Maine, and New Hampshire. To be clear, not New York. If you make the mistake of including New York around a New Englander, you will get an earful from them. This is a thing. Don't do it. New England was named thusly by the English colonists who came in the 17th century, rather infamously to the Wampanoag settlement Patuxet, now known as Plymouth in modern Massachusetts. At the southern border of New England lies Rhode Island, also something of a mystery to outsiders. Is it an island? Is it a state? Well, Rhode Island is a state, and it has islands, lots of islands, 36 to be exact. In fact, because of all the islands, it has 40 miles of coastline, the second highest coast-to-area ratio in the country after Maryland. Four of the 36 islands in the state are large islands with year-round residents, and two more are mainly summer communities with a small year-round population. And the rest are kind of just like rocky outcrops and nobody lives on them. Or maybe there's one house. The largest of these islands is now known as Aquidneck Island. But in colonial times, it was called, you guessed it, Rhode Island by the founder of the nearby Providence Colony, Roger Williams, who incidentally was a religious refugee from the Massachusetts Bay Colony founded by the Puritans, who, in a stunning bit of irony, were themselves religious refugees from Europe. So, Roger Williams called the large island Rhode Island either because it reminded some white guy of the Isle of Rhodes in Greece, or because it looked reddish to some other white guy, and red in Dutch sounds a little bit like road. Either way, that is how the state eventually got its slightly confusing name, the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. 
shortened in 2020 to just the state of Rhode Island because slavery is evil and no one wants to have a word like plantation in their state name. We Mm -hmm. voted on it. (laughs) At some point, probably when Rhode Island came to refer to the entire state rather than just the island, Aquidneck Island reverted to the name or a close approximation of the one used by the nearby Narragansett people, neighbors of the Peconicut people who had inhabited the island for at least 5,000 years. The southern end of Aquidneck Island is where the post-colonial city of Newport was founded in 1639 by other political and religious refugees from Boston. The city was one of the first secular settlements in the Americas, and it became a haven for people of many faiths fleeing the Inquisition, namely Quakers and Jews. So while it's now known in the larger culture as a waspy enclave of yachting dilettantes and the Tennis Hall of Fame, and apparently uh, the Folk Festival, Newport is one of the oldest Jewish settlements in the United States. Same for the Quakers, who were imprisoned in Boston shortly after their first two Quaker women arrived in the colony and then fled to Rhode Island. Interestingly, the shared Jewish and Quaker prejudice in the 16th and 17th centuries led to a well-known trope today. Have you ever wondered why depictions of witches often include black pointy hats? Well, have you? (laughs) Yeah. It's because the people who made witches a thing, the Puritans and Catholics mostly, they hated and feared Jewish and Quaker people. In their teachings and art, they depicted witches, the most evil and satanic people, wearing hats that were similar, if not identical, to hats then commonly worn by Jews and Quakers, dark and cylindrical with a pronounced taper or full-on conical with a point. So yeah, Newport was kind of a refuge from all of this bullshit. I'm glossing over a bunch of stuff here now because we have to get to our crime at some point. But over the next century, Newport became a prosperous and bustling city and trading port. Before the American Revolution, it was one of the top five busiest ports, along with New Amsterdam, which later became New York, Boston, Philly, and Charleston. But before the American Revolution, the British recognized the strategic importance of the island, both for trade and access to Providence, which lays at the north end of the bay that the island is kind of positioned in. The British began full occupation of Newport in 1776, and remained there until 1779. During this time, over half of the colonial population fled to other parts of Rhode Island. Although this occupation didn't help the British prevail in the war, it did cause economic ruin and turmoil on the island for decades. Newport never recovered its position as a trade hub, and because of this, the Industrial Revolution transformed nearby cities like Fall River, Woonsocket, and Pawtucket into industrial powerhouses but passed Newport almost completely by. What initially seemed like a curse, though, meant that Newport retained its picturesque little city charm. With beautiful beaches, a large harbor, and rolling landscape, Newport began to transform itself at this time into a pastoral retreat from urban life in cities that were increasingly overcrowded and blighted by pollution. This was the birth of the Newport most of us know about now. Playground of the richest of the rich, who built enormous, quote, summer cottages, so opulent that they could only have been built before the advent of federal income tax in 1913. Or, you know, today. A room entirely covered in gold leaf, 
built in Europe and shipped to Newport piece by piece and assembled by master craftsmen on site. A children's playhouse with running water, a working fireplace, its own set of engraved china, and a servant call system. I'm referring now to probably the most famous of the Newport summer cottages, the Breakers. It took two years to complete and cost over what is now $215 million for the 70-room, 125,000-square-foot Neo-Italian Renaissance-style palace. Just about a mile down the road, there is an ever-so-slightly less over-the-top but no less dazzling monument to capitalism known as Clarendon Court. This Palladian-style mansion, or cottage, as they were called, was built in 1904 by architect Horace Trumbauer for Pennsylvania Railroad executive Edward Knight, who originally named the house Clarendon Court for his wife, Clara. And now this brings us all the way forward to our crime today. Clarendon Court, 20,000 square feet of splendor, not counting the 5,000 square foot carriage house, that sits on 7.2 acres overlooking Sheep's Point Cove and beyond it to the Atlantic Ocean. This unimaginably beautiful setting is also the scene of an incident so foul and mysterious that more than 40 years later, people locally still have very strong opinions about what happened and who the villain was. After three generations of knights owned the cottage, it changed hands three more times prior to 1970, when American heiress Martha Sharp Crawford, known to her intimates as Sunny because of her happy temperament, and her Danish-British second husband, Klaus Cecil Borberg, later known as Klaus von Bülow, purchased Clarendon Court as their summer retreat. Sunny had inherited an estimated $100 million from her father when she was just three years old. Her mother, also an heiress in her own right, remarried and Sunny was raised happily in New York City. In 1957, Sunny married the noble but penniless Prince Alfred von Ausberg, who was working as a tennis instructor at an Austrian resort. At the time, so much was made of the fact that he was, quote, younger and super hot. But Sunny was also gorgeous. She was often compared to Grace Kelly at the time. And from what I could find, she was literally 25 to his 24. Now, I mention this because it comes into play later, and it demonstrates, I think, this idea that Andrew alluded to earlier that was pervasive at the time, and that's that she was mainly considered desirable because of her money and, to a lesser extent, her appearance. And I think this planted the seed for a lot of problems for Sunny. So Sunny became Princess von Ausberg, and the couple traveled the world and hobnobbed with very the very upper echelons of society. They had two children in quick succession, and all would seem well, but eventually, Sonny couldn't take Alfie's blatant philandering. She divorced him in 1965 and returned with the children to New York. It was around this time that Sonny met Klaus, a Danish-born, low-level aristocrat who was educated at Cambridge University in England and worked in London as a lawyer and personal assistant to J. Paul Getty until he moved to the U.S. in the 60s to be closer to Sonny. Sonny was smitten with Klaus, and they married in June of 1966. They lived in New York with Sonny's son and daughter from her first marriage, and Klaus continued working for Getty for a time. 
1967, their only child was born, Kosima von Bulow, and the family settled into a routine of socializing and travel and, you know, as you do when you're extremely wealthy. The following year, Klaus left his employment, reportedly at Sonny's urging, so he could be at home full-time. Around the same time, Sonny and Klaus's sexual relationship reportedly ended completely, and they entered into an understanding wherein Klaus was permitted lovers as long as he was discreet and the lovers were not part of their social circles. As I said, in 1970, the family purchased Clarendon Court, and Sonny spent the next several years renovating and refurnishing the mansion from top to bottom. And to be clear, when I say Sonny, I mean the people she paid to do it. Yeah. (laughs) But all was not well. In spite of literally having everything materially that she could want, Sonny was terribly unhappy by this point. She reportedly suffered during this time, and perhaps for much longer in her life, from bulimia. Her alcohol and prescription drug use increased dramatically during this time as well. The reasons for this slide into addiction are not entirely known because we only have secondhand reports. But some friends say Sunny was naturally a reserved and private person who wanted a simple, homey life with her husband and children around her. But Klaus was a man about town who enjoyed entertaining, material excess, and a very active social life. And I'm not using that as code for affairs. He just really liked to be out and be part of things. He had reportedly become unhappy himself with the increasingly reclusive and sad Sonny. Around 1979, things began to truly unravel. Klaus had begun an affair with Swedish-born aristocrat and actress Alexandra Isles. Unlike his previous lovers, Alexandra was a social peer who was descended from Danish nobility and raised among the economic and cultural elite in New York City. In December 1979, the family traveled to Newport to spend the holiday at Clarendon Court. Sonny reportedly loved Christmas and enjoyed decorating the mansion and the holiday festivities in the home with all of its English manor charm. On the day after Christmas that year, Sonny was found to be sleeping slash unresponsive slash in a coma in the morning slash afternoon by Klaus slash her maid, Maria Schralhammer. So all of those slashes are because there are a lot of different versions of this event. So we'll come back to this in more detail later. What we do know for certain is that in the afternoon of that day, a doctor was called to the house and the doctor had Sunny taken to the hospital right away. They determined that Sunny was indeed in a coma and that it was caused by something called hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. She received treatment and by the next morning had made a full recovery. She was sent on her way with advice to avoid sweets and alcohol, two things that Sunny famously enjoyed in excess. After this event, the warm relationship Sonny's eldest two children had with their stepfather, Klaus, became clouded with suspicion. The maid, Maria, later reported that a few months after this incident, she found a black bag containing syringes and insulin among Sonny and Klaus's things. This alarmed her because no one in the family had diabetes. She mentioned it to the older children, and all of them began watching Klaus with a suspicious eye. They also reportedly brought this information to Sonny, 
and pleaded with her to do something, but she rebuffed them and essentially refused to listen. In April 1980, Sunny was hospitalized again after becoming incoherent and disoriented. Once again, the cause was determined to be reactive hypoglycemia, and she was placed on a strict diet, which she reportedly didn't follow. I also want to make a note here that the symptoms of hypoglycemia can also be very easily confused with being drunk or being having taken too many prescription pills. So as much as we know about this, I think that there's still a lot that we don't know. Was mm-hmm. she having a hypoglycemic incident or was she drunk or high or <laughs> yeah. you look like you were going to say something <laughs> i was just thinking about it it's like i don't know if there's any harm in saying uh, someone in my immediate family is hypoglycemic it's yeah. like maybe i won't say exactly who they are i was also borderline hypoglycemic at one point when i was uh in my late teens oh i didn't know that yeah it was a oh the blood test they're so much easier now but when i did it it, it, it was like such a long day of drinking the worst liquid ever and then they just kept sticking your arms with needles over and over again oh that sounds like the test you have to do when you're pregnant to see if you have gestational diabetes but yeah um they would like the crashes looked crazy yeah like whenever it would happen and it was like oh my god we need to get like peanut butter crackers and yeah but it it was kind of like drunk and i was so young because i was like a kid at the time when it was happening uh, with them that it was like oh what is going on like why aren't they like responding in the right way like just sort of out of it and kind of not slurry but just like really out of like slow cognition yeah which would eventually lead to like passing out right scary but like from the perspective of analyzing this crime so interesting yeah (laughs) crime in quotes we'll get to that (laughs) So following that incident in April, life continued more or less normally for the family, even as Sunny continued to kind of unravel. Klaus's affair with Alexandra continued, and according to Alexandra's later testimony, she wanted no part of the open marriage agreement Klaus and Sunny had. She wanted to be with him exclusively, and she gave him an ultimatum regarding his marriage to Sunny. Klaus reported that he had told Sonny about the affair, if not the ultimatum, which ushered in a new level of erratic behavior for Sonny and discussions of divorce. At this point, the marital tension was fully out in the open and probably the subject of gossip in Newport and New York. On the evening of December 21, 1980, the family was once again in Newport for the Christmas holiday. Klaus and Sonny returned home early from a party because Sonny had seemingly become extraordinarily drunk. She was stumbling and slurring and generally appeared to be highly intoxicated. Klaus and her maid put her to bed. Early the next morning, according to Klaus, Sonny was still asleep in bed, and he left to take the dogs for a walk along the beach. He came back a bit later and reportedly found the bed empty and assumed Sonny was in the bathroom getting ready. He went to another part of the house to exercise and then went to the dining room for breakfast. At this point, he expected Sonny to be up, and when she wasn't at breakfast, he went to check on her. He reportedly found her in the bathroom, face down on the marble floor with the window slightly open. 
She had vomited and her nightdress was pulled up over her waist. She was cold to the touch and could not be roused. An ambulance was called immediately and Sunny was taken to the hospital. There, they found her body temperature to just be 81 degrees and her heart rate was below 40 beats per minute. Yeah, so barely alive. The medical team stabilized her, but she never again regained consciousness. She lived from that day for 28 years in a persistent vegetative state until her death from cardiopulmonary arrest in 2008. So that is the crime, kind of in a nutshell, or the alleged crime. Mm -hmm. What happened from there is kind of all over the place. So after this happened, her children immediately suspected Klaus of injecting her with insulin. They had already suspected it from the first time she had been in the hospital, But this time they hired a private detective and a lawyer to come and investigate. So it was at this time that this bag that Maria had found the year before came up again. And the investigators found the bag in the house and seized it and sent it off, the contents off to be tested. What they found inside were vials of insulin and a syringe. And on the tip of the syringe, it was encrusted with something that later tested to be insulin. So the working theory was that Klaus had injected her with insulin, and that was the cause of of her coma. Mm -hmm. She had so much brain damage. You know, she had been on that floor for who knows how long. The window had been open. It was December that even then they had very little hope that she would ever regain consciousness, although the children really clung to the belief that she might. Mm -hmm. So she was put into a hospital in New York, closer to where they lived full time, and she was cared for around the clock for all of these years. Klaus was interviewed and eventually arrested and charged with attempted murder, and he was put on trial in Newport in February 1982. At this first trial, evidence was presented about his affair, about his potential monetary motive um, for killing her, and, and the medical evidence of the previous incidences with hypoglycemia. At the end of that first trial, he was convicted, and the family felt a huge relief that justice was being done. Unfortunately, shortly after that time, he reached out to, even then, famed lawyer and law professor at Harvard, Alan Dershowitz, for help filing an appeal. Mm -hmm. Alan Dershowitz reviewed all of the information, put a team together to come over everything and file an appeal. They had kind of a famously short period of time to do it, and what they did is they kind of took every approach. So they approached the needle. They approached the um, trustworthiness of the maids and the children. And they kind of came at it from every different angle, trying to poke holes in the entire case. And in the end, they did win the appeal. And the Supreme Court of Rhode Island overturned the conviction. There was then a second trial of Klaus von Bülow. This time... The defense attorneys, which 
Dershowitz advised on but was not lead counsel on this case. He advised that they move the trial from Newport into Providence for a more balanced and fair review and, and jury pool. In the second trial, the prosecution approached it as basically a representing of the information in the first trial. But of course, by this time, there, were, there was already information about the needle and all of the holes that Dershowitz had poked in the original case. The defense attorneys use this now in the retrying of this case. And so to many people's surprise, the verdict came back in the second trial as not guilty. And at that point, Von Bulow was free to continue his life. During these years of the trial, he was free on bail, money that was given to him by J. Paul Getty, his former employer. And he lived in their apartment in New York with his new mistress and stayed with her in Newport as well. So all this time, Sonny's money is continuing to fund his lifestyle, to fund his defense, to, you know, keep him in the lifestyle that he had become accustomed to. At this point, though, as soon as that second trial ended in an acquittal, the family launched a civil case. And at that point, Von Bulow settled. He agreed to give Sonny a divorce, to release any claim on her fortune, um, in exchange, he was allowed to leave the country. Um, he was not going to be monetarily held liable. And also, the daughter that he shared with Sonny, Cosima, she had been disowned by Sonny's mother's family at that time because she sided with her father and all of this. Mm -hmm. As part of this deal, Cosima had been brought back into the family inheritance from Sonny's mother's money. And then Von Bulow went on to live a normal, very weird life. Yeah. So those are basically the facts. But there's a lot in here that we can dig into that I just leave up for our like wildly speculating out of our asses part. That is my personal yeah. favorite part. <laughs> so the first incident. I mean, let's go back to the first incident. I said like morning slash afternoon, Klaus slash maid. There were wildly differing versions of this event. So one version comes from Klaus himself, and his official version is just exactly what he said. She slept in. She had a hangover. She had been out the night before. There was nothing really wrong until she started kind of like having trouble breathing in the afternoon, and that's when he like sent up the alarm. Mm -hmm. He even had said to Maria, the maid, at one point that she had gotten up to go to the bathroom in the morning. Like, he knew she was conscious because she had gotten up. Maria's version of events was, no, she never moved. She was lifeless, still unmoving for the entire morning every time she came in and checked on her. Mm -hmm. This, she felt, was reinforced by the fact after she was taken to the hospital that afternoon, she checked the bed and Sunny had wet the bed. So... Clearly she not hadn't, going to the bathroom. Yeah, not going to the bathroom and also not asleep. I mean, I suppose I've known people who have gone to the bathroom in their bed after drinking too much, but like semi-comatose at the very least, like not mm -hmm. in control of her bodily functions. To the point where the story of getting up and going to the bathroom isn't true. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
The other thing that was notably and remarkably weird about all of this is that Klaus sat in bed with her all day long. He never left her side. So on the one hand, he's claiming that he didn't really think anything was wrong with her. She was just hungover and kind of sleeping in late. At the same time, he never left her side. He just sat there, almost as if he was someone sitting there waiting for her to die. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe. Allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's that kind of first incident. Then, you know, the second incident, again, like same kind of stuff, but not taken to that extreme. Then the last incident, there's a lot kind of made of this. First of all, was she really extremely drunk when she came home? Or was she having a hypoglycemic uh, crisis Mm -hmm. even in the evening, right? Because again, the symptoms, not so dissimilar. Then put to bed in spite of this kind of extreme case, Klaus's version says, well, Sonny hated doctors and, you know, if he would have called a doctor, she would have yelled at him, you know, okay. But the next morning, again, he claims she was in bed, she was fine when he left, he came back, she wasn't there, thought she was in the bathroom, but why would the window be open in the bathroom in December? It was freezing outside. You know, the bathroom was all marble, not like a warm, cozy kind of bathroom that would get overheated. Mm -hmm. So just things about that are weird. The way that she fell and her pajamas were up over her waist, like also strange. But something that might happen if somebody were dragged into a place, right? So again, very strange. Three weeks before the second incident, the final incident that left her essentially brain dead, she had gone to the hospital, and the doctors found that she had 73 pills of aspirin in her system. Now, Sunny was known to take and overuse aspirin regularly for aches and pains. I mean, the bottom line is she was someone in a lot of psychic pain, mm-hmm. and she self-medicated in a lot of different ways. So about this incident, we don't really know. Was that a suicide attempt? What did she just go overboard with her usual taking, you know, either on purpose or she was drunk or on other medications and forgot she had already taken like her daily fistful of aspirin and took another, you know, was so it crushed up and put into food or beverage. Exactly. And because of the power and influence of this family, and I think the wealthy's kind of like knee jerk desire for privacy really not a lot is known about these things. Investigations, proper investigations weren't done, but it leads to kind of a puzzling series of events. The infamous syringe and the reason that the appeal team with Dershowitz and then the defense in the second trial was able to make so much of that, Dershowitz had another sample of syringes that were filled with other prescription medicines sent to the same lab and had them analyzed. And they came back with results of insulin, among other things. Mm -hmm. They had no insulin in them. So they basically discredited the lab completely that had tested the syringe. The other piece of that is it was famously, the tip of the syringe was famously encrusted with dried something, and that something was found to be insulin. 
Well, I mean, I, th- I think most of us have at some point had blood drawn or some kind of injection. We know what the experience of having a needle go through our skin is. And when you put it in and you pull it out, there's nothing left on the needle, right? Like mm-hmm. the skin kind of wipes it clean. And so the defense's theory was that the children had essentially dipped the, dipped a needle in insulin. They thought that they knew what had happened and they sought to, you know, create evidence to prove that. So that is something and, and that's hard to kind of dismiss. At the same time, I mean, it's not impossible to frame or try to frame a guilty person. Mm-hmm. So the fact that that syringe probably wasn't valid and maybe had been placed by some well-meaning person who loved Sonny and wanted to see justice served doesn't mean he didn't do it. It just means that that wasn't probably the needle that he used. Devil's advocate. He could have pulled it out. He's not a doctor. He didn't inject all of it and then pushed more out after the injection. Yeah. And there would be more. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, anything could could be possible. I didn't read anything about fingerprints on the syringe or finger, you know, I mean, so I don't know how rigorously it was really investigated in the ways that we would think of a crime like this being investigated now. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the children, in a way, kind of created that scenario when they brought in a private investigator and a private lawyer to do this rather than the police like that kind of set them on a bad footing in terms of chain of custody and you know things like that and again i said at the beginning even 40 years later locals have very strong opinions on what happened here who did it who the villain Mm -hmm. was and i can only really speak to this as a late coming Rhode Islander. So I didn't grow up here. I moved here in my teens. My family is from here though. And a lot of my family lived here during this time and followed the case very closely. And essentially, I mean, everyone who I talked to about it thinks that he did it. You know, he had motive, he had means, he had opportunity. He also just acted weird and bizarre as fuck. Like after um, not just having his second mistress move in and essentially start living Sonny's life, but he would sometimes joke about it. He would make insulin jokes at dinner parties, like just weird, weird stuff. Yeah. The thing to me, if she was hypoglycemic, knowing the amount of sugar and alcohol, mm-hmm. she would have been blacking out all the time. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that there's only a couple known incidents Mm-hmm. is also kind of sketchy to me yeah. if she did like alcohol that much and she did have alcohol that much like her blood sugar would have been wildly fluctuating yeah. and she would have been passing out in front of people that weren't klaus in the maid right right and and i think that may have happened some i mean part of it is that she did become really reclusive so part of the reason it only happened in front of her family klaus the maid Um, and other servants is because it got to a certain point where she wasn't really leaving the house all that much. The other thing that somewhat complicates this is that, as I said, she suffered from bulimia. She was known to take dozens and dozens of laxatives every day during this period. There was some testimony during the first trial that she had 
used insulin as a dieting aid at some time and had shown someone how to do that, how to inject it. So again, none of that was conclusive. All it really did was serve to confuse the jury because timelines couldn't be made. And, you know, it was all circumstantial, the, the against Klaus and the for Klaus. It was all circumstantial. So it was very difficult, I, I think, to, to make much sense of it. I guess that explains why there were needles, because I don't have hypodermic needles in my house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, again, if that is true... Like, there's a lot of money in this case, and her friends didn't talk about it. It was this one person, I'm searching my brain now for who she was um, in relation to the case, who had talked, maybe it was a maid or someone that she had talked to and shown how to do it and talked about insulin as, as a weight loss tool. But there wasn't really evidence of that. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't evidence of her doing that. There was evidence and it was known and she talked about taking laxatives. Um, but the insulin part, maybe she did know how to do it. and It was something she did when she was younger. I mean, you know, again, we just don't know. So there's a lot of this that is secondhand information. You know, just someone said once, but I'm not saying this is what happened, but Klaus certainly at that point had access to the kind of money that could make a former maid say pretty much anything he wanted them to say, you know. Or a former lover. Yeah. Well, and that is interesting. So Alexandra Isles, she actually testified against him in both trials pretty dramatically. Yeah, it's no matter what, it's sketchy. It's sketchy as fuck, yeah. And so he just went on and, you know, lived a pretty nice life. And he lived to the ripe old age of, like, 91. He only died a couple years ago, um, gallivanting in Europe. And I think he married that second mistress and, you know, just not the kind of life that you would want for someone who had done what he was accused of, certainly. If he didn't do it, then, you know, he was just kind of like the unluckiest bastard around because everything sure looked like he is someone who would do something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, his daughter and Sonny's daughter stuck by him, stayed in his life. I think she ended up kind of reconciling with her siblings and, you know, they're all still around. This is not that long ago. But it's a really sad tale, even if it was completely accidental. It's mm-hmm. a really sad end to a life that could have been so different. And with a case like this, it's no surprise that there was nationwide publicity, intrigue. It was huge. Mm-hmm. And it has impacted lots of pieces of pop culture. <laughs> so Alan Dershowitz, mm-hmm. Klaus's attorney and... I'd be remiss not to mention also Donald Trump, O.J. Simpson, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein's attorney and legal services provider uh, at different times. And he has his own sex trafficking allegations, lawsuits, and countersuits right now. I feel like maybe he could be our our shitbag du jour. Yeah, I, I can't stand him in general. 
I understand that the way the law works is you have to represent guilty people, but I mean, his whole career is just exploiting every turn of the legal system to protect bad people. Right. And I mean, okay, but like defend people, but maybe like some poor people sometimes. And I mean, he supposedly did and he did, but like it was very clear that he had a need and desire to be a part of that world of fame and celebrity and you know Mm -hmm. yeah an epstein accuser accused him in a netflix documentary so he's suing netflix and netflix is countersuing him right now um and he had those crazy tweets about i hope epstein recorded every single person so that you can prove that it i didn't do anything and I am not making an accusation. I am just saying there are accusations against him. And I don't know. You build a career like that. You associate with these people pretty deeply, not just in the courtroom. Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) Anyway. I don't like him as a human being. I can say that and not get sued. I also don't like him. And now he rails against this entire court system that he created. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, he wrote a book about the case, Reversal <laughs> of Fortune Inside the Von Bulow Case, and that was 1985. And illustrating this level of intrigue around the case, Dershowitz begins Reversal of Fortune with a remark from one of the prosecutors involved. So that book starts, quote, The case has everything. It has money, sex, drugs. It has Newport, New York, and Europe. It has nobility. It has maids, butlers, and a gardener, end quote. So interesting, according to a New York Times piece I was able to find, interestingly enough, written by Nora Ephron. And I was like, this is so weird. (laughs) But (laughs) Dershowitz says it was Klaus who urged him to write the book in the first place. Hmm. So interesting tidbit. I couldn't find that anywhere else. Just this random New York Times piece by Nora Ephron. Mm-hmm. But I I have some other anecdotes about Klaus. So it does sort of seem to fit. Yeah. So I also could find almost nothing about the like cultural success of the book or even the book sales. It, it really difficult to find. I was surprised. Yeah. But... Its ultimate success was being adapted into the incredibly successful, well-received, and award-winning movie. Mm-hmm. And that's 1990s film, Reversal of Fortune, starring Jeremy Irons as Klaus, Glenn Close as Sonny, and Ron Silver as Dershowitz. Mm-hmm. Now, the book is written through, what, Dershowitz-colored lenses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is the hero in the book, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah, He is the hero in his narrative. Um, So just sort of keep that in mind as well, that this is the recounting from Klaus's defense lawyer. (laughs) Like, you know. And also Dershowitz's son was a producer on the movie. Hmm. Even still, (laughs) uh, it received 
massively positive reviews, praise. It currently has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. The consensus says, quote, featuring exceptional performances and a cunning script, Reversal of Fortune doubles as a tantalizing mystery and ruthless satire of the rich, end quote. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Reversal of Fortune was discussed in the 2020 episode of the podcast Chapo Trap House, with the team noting the parallels between Klaus being accused of murdering his wife and the mysterious suicide of Dershowitz's first wife. But that's a different story for a different discussion. Wow. Just, it's a thing that people have said. I am not saying anything is a fact. We're just reporting the news. (laughs) We're talking about one of the most ruthless lawyers in the world. I am not making any assumption, any connection other than someone else said it. And I'm telling you that someone else said it. Wow. But anyway, in 2015... The 25th anniversary of Entertainment Weekly named Reversal of Fortune on its list of the best 25 films of the past 25 years. It's been recognized by the American Film Institute in multiple lists, uh, 2003's 100 Years, Heroes and Villains, 2008's 10 Top 10. It was nominated for and won many awards, including multiple Critics' Choice Awards, Golden Globes, uh, and Academy Award nominations for Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay, and an Oscar win for Jeremy Irons as Best Actor. Yeah. So to prepare for the role, Irons watched interviews of Klaus. He watched courtroom video, how to behave, trying to learn how to represent him as a real person because physically they were pretty different. Mm-hmm. But in a review praising the film, Roger Ebert said, quote, The most extraordinary personality in the film is Klaus Van Bulow's, as he is played by Jeremy Irons. He appears as a man with affections and bizarre mannerisms, a man who speaks as if he lifted his words from an arc drawing room comedy, who smokes a cigarette as if hailing a taxi. Irons is able to suggest, subtly, that some of this over-the-top behavior is the result of fear. Von Bülow cannot modulate his tone, cannot find the right note, because beneath his facade, he's quaking, end quote. So it goes without saying that Irons successfully navigated the role, but he wasn't the only one watching their counterpart. I found an interview from 2009 where Irons was talking about the film, the experience, and Klaus. And he said that Klaus would send him postcards responding to and contradicting things he said during interviews about the film. So three years after the film came out, Klaus and Irons met at a social event. And according to Irons, Klaus's first words when they met were, see, I'm not fat. And Irons responded, Klaus, I never said you were fat. I said you were bigger than me. Wow. (laughs) So I know it's a tangent, but there's something so interesting in that to me. I'm sure anybody would be like deeply interested and invested in a movie coming up about not just about you, but about you maybe killing your wife. Like, yeah, yeah, you're going to be watching. You're going to be following it. But that's your fucking takeaway. The step of sending the postcards (laughs) seemed like a step past normal so that felt weird to me what do you think Kirsten hearing this a bit of trivia a thousand percent plus I mean when you think of it from that standpoint but also the fact that 
he's a member of like the absolute elite of human society on the planet. Not mm-hmm. not just like New York or Newport, like in the world, like nobility, aristocracy, royalty, like that, those are the circles that he ran in. And he's sending Jeremy Irons a postcard about his portrayal and then like bringing up that he thought that he said he was fat. I mean, that is so weird. Yeah, multiple postcards. So I... That was the bit of trivia where I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk about this. I even highlighted it in my notes because I was like, I want to know what Kirsten thinks of this. Well, I'm so interested, too, in this fact that you couldn't find any information because so I rewatched the movie for this episode because Mm -hmm. I had I watched it when it came out. I was 18 and I haven't seen it since. So I watched it again and I noticed the part where Dershowitz is kind of joking with him about maybe killing his mother. And I was like whoa like i don't remember that at all and so i tried to find something on the internet about it like i could find almost nothing like literally i could find maybe two links about his mother in english that's it yeah there's nothing nothing i found one article that talked about a rumor from when he was in law school in england where his classmates teased him about maybe killing his mother, and that's it. I mean, it's almost as if, (laughs) and I know that this isn't really possible, (laughs) and ask me how I know, but it's almost like he had the internet scrubbed or something. Like, it's crazy (laughs) how little information there is about this. (laughs) Well, and everything I could find about Reversal of Fortune, the book, was from Dershowitz. It Like, I couldn't find reviews, and it's not like the 80s and 90s were that long ago i mean stuff still exists for every case we've done previous to this one right i mean if there's stuff about cases that happened in the 1800s there should be stuff about that book and i was looking hard because i it's so stupid because i was like well just anecdotally you know it's the culture side i i want to know like how it was received was it a new york times bestseller what did Mm -hmm. people think because the trial was big nothing that's crazy really really weird (laughs) But then the postcards, yeah. Sending the postcards, responding to things he got right or got wrong in his press tour. Because, you know, there's a lot of press, especially you have to do a press tour leading up to, like, awards, especially when you're a contender. Right. But he did fixate on Iron saying he was bigger than him to the point where it was his first words when they did beat. That's bizarre. Yeah, apparently he walked up behind him, too. Like, he was out. It was at a party, a big social gathering he knew klaus was there because the host told him and was like it's okay if you want to leave and he was like no that's fine but apparently he was like watching something and then a voice behind him was like see i'm not fat (laughs) oh my god i mean everything that i could find about it made it sound like he almost enjoyed the notoriety well that's that's part of why i included the one reference about klaus was the one pushing Dershowitz to write the book yeah and then he wrote it like I don't I didn't go into this in my notes because I felt like I was talking a little bit too much about the movie but like Mm -hmm. he wrote the success and the fame like that was part of his social currency after the fact to the point where there was a story again from Dershowitz which is also kind of why I didn't include it but um where they were having a dinner party 
there were, there were famous people there, interesting people there. And Dershowitz was sort of explaining why legally Klaus was innocent. And one of the famous people like grabbed his wife and was like, uh, I'm starting to think he's innocent. I thought this was going to be a fun party with the murderer. Let's leave. Uh, but again, I was like, but is that just your ego in this other book about how good you are about proving him right. innocent that you're now telling a story about you convinced these other famous people? I, yeah. It's all sort of swirling in this fame, notoriety, public circle that makes it I mean, I just don't trust anything from Dershowitz. I mean, I know that he'll he'll say anything in court. He'll yeah. use the court system. So why should I believe that doesn't extend to the court of public opinion? Thousand percent. And I, I mean, all of this, like, it feels very similar in flavor to publishing a book called I didn't do it but if I did <laughs> this is how I would have right yes. like it just feels so of that uh ilk yeah so then just kind of running through a quick list of other pop culture references Professor Vincent Marks, an insulin expert of the University of Surrey England and Caroline Richmond have a chapter on the science underpinning Sonny Von Bulow's medical condition in their 2007 book, Insulin Murders. Mm. On TV, in an episode of Seinfeld, Jerry compares his neighbor Martin's coma to Sonny Von Bulow's. In Will and Grace, Sonny's repeatedly brought up on the show for connections to the character Karen. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jack implies that she was somehow involved in Sonny's vegetative state saying that her garter phone is only for emergencies such as, quote, if Sonny Von Bulow comes to and starts pointing fingers, end quote. That's terrible. And I'm Gilmore laughing, Girls, but it's awful. Yeah. And Gilmore Girls, Rory's roommate Paris freaks out over an upcoming date, comically comparing women who fall in love, saying, quote, they give up careers and become alcoholics, and if you're Sonny Von Bulow, wind up in a coma completely incapable of stopping Glenn Close from portraying you in a movie. Ugh. End quote. So it's interesting, and especially as someone like me, like this was before my time, this was kind of before my awareness. Yeah. But these reference I mean, Gilmore Girls, Will and Grace, like it it just goes to show the equivalency of them in society to the point where TV writers are like, Well, these are high society people, we're gonna include it. Yeah, I mean this is totally in my zone. So like I was a kid when it happened, but I was like on the cusp of adulthood when the movie came out. And I think for people my age and probably because of my Rhode Island connection, it's just, I mean, you couldn't escape it. It really was kind of, you know, like the OJ of, of that decade. Mm -hmm. So then there's sort of the true crime TV piece, so like episodes of American Justice, uh, biography produced an episode, Klaus von Bülow, A Reasonable Doubt, and that had interviews with Klaus and Dershowitz. Uh, in 2015, Mansions and Murders had an episode detailing mm -hmm. it. Uh, the story was featured in Dominic Dune's Power, Privilege, and Justice. I may have rewatched that. 
for this episode and then followed it by a documentary about his whole life i love him yeah uh, it was the case was cited by a judge in an episode of law and order Mm. and lastly just sort of this one was more so the random ripple effects the characters klaus and sunny baudelaire in the immensely popular a series of unfortunate events Mm-hmm. novels and then tv show are named yeah. after sunny and klaus yeah so like i said it's no surprise that a case this popular people this rich not quite famous but like socialites whatever that word would be for them yeah it's just no surprise that it would impact pop culture in these ways it's just really interesting to see how it might impact next yeah yeah, definitely. And I think it was in that little pocket of time in between that class of people being completely and utterly removed from normies mm-hmm. and the kind of like celebutant like saturation that we have now. It was just in that window where television and gossip columns and things like that gave us some view of it it was around that time that lifestyles of the rich and famous was like really a big thing but not like the intimate look behind the scenes that a case like this would provide Mm -hmm. and of course now you can't escape it even if you wanted to the intimate like tmi of the super wealthy but at that time it was kind of like a first peek behind the velvet curtain yeah this is a I mean, it's nice to not be doing a serial killer, (laughs) but it's just so interesting all of the ways that the intrigue, the double trial, like, yeah, it's just so interesting to think about what this has inspired and what it'll keep doing. Yeah. And, you know, I think oftentimes it's really easy to think of families like this as, wholly different you know she did have addiction problems and she was not a mother in the way that most like middle class or lower class working class people are familiar with you know there were Mm -hmm. nannies there were like expensive schools and all of this that gave it a different kind of tone but her kids loved her they actually spent the bulk of what remained of her fortune on her care She stayed at a hospital for most of that time, and they paid a hairdresser to come in every day to fix her hair, manicurist to come once a week and paint her nails. Like, she was bathed every single day. Like, they just took such amazing care of her, and they went on to found, and I don't have the name of it right in front of me, but essentially a victim's advocacy um, nonprofit that still exists today. Wow. Wow. So they, they loved her deeply, and, and they were very, I think, you know, impacted by the fact that they believed that the person who ultimately murdered their mother got away with it and went on to not only be free, but, I mean, thrive and live a life that most people would only dream of. And like you said, and I mentioned, like, brag about it and dinner parties, mm-hmm. I, this was the sole... Like, he was already a socialite, but this added, like, a whole new cachet. And I, from what I hear, it's definitely worn out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, like, it, it overwore its welcome. But still, I mean, he was obsessed with it. 
And yeah. especially, again, it, you only have sort of like weird recollections and it all comes from Dershowitz. But if Klaus pushed for the book, Klaus obviously loved watching the stuff, sending those postcards. Like, yeah, it's hard to think of somebody. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm contradicting myself in my own mind. Like, I guess if he felt like the book would prove him innocent. But it just sort of seems like reveling in the notoriety of it in a way yeah. that, like, a truly good person might not do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like a truly good person would, I don't know, like, publicly mourn or grieve in some way and have some dignity and some class about it, you know, moving on. Or even if it's for show, like set up a charity about dealing with addiction or set up something because I didn't say this before but like dieting and using insulin is incredibly different from hypoglycemia so like which Mm -hmm. was it right right and that's why I feel like I mean I don't know maybe not but like I feel like the answer could still be known you know I don't know yeah so, listeners, if you have any theories, add us, tag us, let us know. Absolutely. It's an interesting one. And it gave me the opportunity to give a lot of history about Rhode Island and Newport, which I love. And I think that eventually we're going to be doing some more crimes here. So, yeah. Which people love to whack each other. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production.